Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Between two hawks, which flies the higher pitch? Between two dogs, which have the deeper mouth? Between two girls, which hath the merriest eye, I have perhaps some shallow spirit of judgment. But in these nice, sharp quillets of the law, good faith, I am no wiser than a door. Hello and welcome to The Plays the Thing. That was Warwick trying to not cause trouble between his two friends in part one of Henry VI. This is a special episode in that we are going to not just do one play in one episode, but we're going to do three plays in one episode. We're going to do Henry VI part one, two, and three. And as if that wasn't a, you know, I don't know, heavy enough burden. These are three of the most complicated plays that you will read from Shakespeare. We've got dozens of characters. Some characters change allegiances. Some of them have kind of like multiple names that they go by. And so I've got a special guest that I've brought in to help me. And I'm going to introduce her in just a second. But let me just give you a little bit more about the Henry VI trilogy. The Henry VI trilogy is believed by some scholars to be the first three plays that Shakespeare wrote. Some scholars think, no, it's Comedy of Errors. That was number one. But a lot think that these were the first three that he wrote. And they are about the War of the Roses. The War of the Roses lasted for about 50 years from 1455 to 1487. So kind of a hundred years before Shakespeare's time. They're kind of still fresh in the English memory. And they, the War of the Roses were fought between supporters of two rival branches of the same house, the House of Plantagenet. Each of these rivals were kind of claiming, we deserve the throne. No, we deserve the throne. So 
the two houses were Lancaster and York, and they are represented, these two houses are represented by different colored roses, the red rose of Lancaster, the white rose of York, thus the War of the Roses. And that little audio that we heard at the beginning from Warwick is when one of the houses is like, hey, Warwick, settle this little legal dispute between us. Which one do you think is correct? Are you going to wear the white rose or the red rose? And Warwick, for now, kind of stays out of it, you know? In these sharp quillets of the law, good faith, I am no wiser than a daw, a jackdaw. A daw is a reference to a jackdaw, which was a bird known for not having a whole lot of intelligence. Okay, I'm about to introduce Ashley, but just keep in mind, these three plays, full of battles, full of flowers, full of more battles, even Joan of Arc, even a queen raising an army against her husband, we're in for lots of action and lots of bloodshed. And to help me tackle all three plays at once is my friend, Ashley Wright. Let me tell you about Ashley. She is a second year Shakespeare and performance MFA student at Mary Baldwin University. Her most recent work on stage has included Maximilius from The Winter's Tale. She's also played Hero and... She is gearing up to play Hamlet. So Ashley, you are serving presently as an understudy for three plays at the American Shakespeare Center in Staunton, Virginia. Is that right? Yes, it is. Um, so yes, I am part of their acting fellows program, which is um, sort of a kind of a, a program that they work on with the students at Mary Baldwin. They get about five of them per season to essentially serve as their understudies. Um, so I am understudying as um, Beatrice and Hero in Much Ado About Nothing. And last weekend, or I guess it was two weekends ago, I got a chance to go on as Hero, which was very exciting. Um, and and how, much, how, how much notice did you get, Ashley, before they kind of pulled you on stage saying, hey, um, you're a hero? Less than 24 hours. Um, <laughs> they crazy. emailed me and one of the other fellows that was playing Claudio to tell us that, hey, tomorrow you guys are going on. And we said, oh, OK. So we got four hours of rehearsal. Um, and coincidentally, Hero was the part I had worked on the least because Beatrice is a much bigger role. And then my other track that I'm understudying for is Hamlet. Um, so he says a lot more than he Yes, he does. Yes, um, he does. So I was really working on that. And, and, um, the way that the, that their seasons work is they work in prep or in repertory. So they, um, will open one show and then a couple weeks later they open the next one and then those two run at the same time. And then they add in a third one at the end. So the third one they're going to be adding in is Coriolanus. Um, I actually don't know which tracks I'm understudying for that one yet. They have, okay. but eventually that'll be the third one. Um, Yes, so I I did. So I got a chance to go on as hero. I'm still working on Beatrice and Hamlet opens this weekend. So or now how much notice will you have before you get pulled on stage to play Hamlet? I'm really hoping that <laughs> more than twenty four hours. I get more than twenty four Um it, I'm really just I'm just really hoping I don't have to go on at all, quite frankly. Really? Um, yeah. Quite a, it's quite a tall order, um, not to mention all of the, the, the sword fighting choreography that I've watched the main actors do, but I have not done it yet. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, no, it's definitely uh, it's a, an experience um, for sure. But it, it's 
very, uh, it's very useful in terms of learning how to, uh, even if you never go on as an understudy, the, the preparation for a role and the, like the being ready to go on, being ready to fill in, um, is very useful in your training as an actor. <laughs> is it really? It is. Like, uh, yeah. like be on your toes. You never know when your moment is going to arrive. Is that the Pretty mindset? Much. Yeah. Uh, and also just the, the feeling of like, you're, you're never going to be ready. Um, oh yeah. You just, you just have to do it. Eventually you have to go. I mean, I was, I was definitely overwhelmed when I was told you're, you're understudying Hamlet because I was like, I don't think I have an, have an experience to like do this. This is like one of the biggest roles in Shakespeare. Totally. I, I don't think I have enough experience to do it. Um, and the, the point of that, I think is just that like, well, you never will. So you might as well try it a few times and try it in more, um, I don't know, uh, controlled circumstances i suppose yeah. where the stakes yeah. are a little bit lower in a lot of ways and, absolutely um, you know all the other actors were very lovely to work with they were very accommodating and were very encouraging and were like you're doing great like, thank you i really don't know what i'm doing at all but <laughs> um, <laughs> they were they're very nice i'll tell you a story about like always wishing you had more time i played hamlet several years ago at a theater in oregon and opening night we were about to go on and like I was very troubled because we had never in rehearsals made it through act one without a major glitch, like a, like stop the show back up, which, you know, usually by the time you're getting like a week before rehearsal, you're just running. You're not stopping for any reason. We had never made it through act one, which is complicated in Hamlet. You know, you got the ghost and you've got, you know, all, so. I was pretty nervous and we not only made it through act one without a major mess up, but it was actually a really great act one. And I remember I was backstage with Horatio and I was like, oh my gosh, I think that was a really good act. And he was like, we just made it. Yeah, we just made it. So it was, I mean, we could have rehearsed that thing to death and never put it on stage, but it was really good. Okay. I want to ask you about two things. The American Shakespeare Center in Staunton, Virginia, for me, has a very high, I mean, I've got a really high estimation of that place. Can you tell us anything about it? Oh, sure. I, I definitely can. So the way I ever even heard about this um, grad, graduate program was because when I was an undergrad, I went to Grove City College, and our English department, um, our professor who taught Shakespeare, he uh, was always talking about his professor, um, Dr. Cohen, who taught him at James Madison University, and would always, and he was telling our class about how, you know, um, Dr. Cohen founded this theater in Virginia that was a recreation of the um, of Shakespeare's company's Blackfriars Theater. So mm. the Globe was their outdoor theater, the Blackfriars was their indoor theater, um, and he, uh, this professor of mine, he would take trips of students down every year to see the to see the shows. Yeah. And I just sort of on a whim decided to go my the fall of my freshman year. And I loved it. It was just, I mean, the mm. theater itself is beautiful because like I said, it's, a big it's beautiful. It's just like, I mean, yeah, it's, we don't know exactly what the Blackfriars looks like um, or would have looked like, but they've got a pretty good guess. So they, they really just, it's a, it's a gorgeous theater. Um, they do a lot of what is sort of loosely termed as like original practice. Um, mm hmm Bottle so that the lights stay on the whole time. They there's a lot of audience interaction. Um, you can sit on the stage. There's like they call them the gallant stools. There's about there's usually six on or six on each side, and you can literally sit on the stage. 
Um, I got to sit on the stage for Richard III, which was very exciting because of all the fighting and stuff. It's happening really close, and the actors come up and get in your face. Sometimes they make you get out of your seat, and like you, it's it was a very very special experience. So I went on a couple of those trips, saw a good a good number of plays, and then heard that they had a graduate program, and so I was very interested in that. Um, the the graduate program is sort of in partnership with the American Shakespeare Center. They're not directly connected, but the university is like a practice from the theater. So they're just they're okay. a lot of overlap there. So, um, so yeah, that's how I, that's how I heard about it. But the American Shakespeare Center has been there. I think they're celebrating. Oh, I think it's like 35 years or something. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. Um, and it's, they just, yeah, they just, they've been around for a while and, They've had, I mean, they've definitely done the whole Shakespearean canon probably. They also do a lot of other early modern drama that was um, written by Shakespeare's contemporaries. They've got, uh, they've got some big names who are on their board. Um, like Judy Dench, for example, is on their board. Right. Um, I don't know. If, when I, are you going to work with Judy Dench? You know, when is Judy I mean, Dench going to show up and work like, with you? I don't know if she's ever actually been to the theater, but um, she, she is in connection with it. And... Yeah, no, it's just you you meet a lot of really, really awesome people, a lot of really cool connections. Um, Dr. Cohen, who founded the program, is still teaches. He's technically retired, but he's like never going to retire. Yeah, um, yeah. He still teaches all the first years. They're like intro to it, it's called the language of performance class. They're basically like, how do you do lambda pentameter? Like everything there is to know and all the stuff you didn't even want to know about it. <laughs> um, so that sounds great. It is really great. It's it's really awesome. Um, and yeah, getting to use the, the the MBU students usually get to do at least one production um, every year in the Blackfriars Theater. So yeah. last year with my first year cohort, we did Henry the Sixth one. Um, okay, which, and you pl- you played Vernon. I did. Yes, I okay, played. Okay, tell Vernon. us about Vernon. Who is um, Vernon in Henry the Sixth Part One? Because this can kind of be. There's so many characters. Like maybe this uh-huh. is our avenue into deciphering this puzzle of a. a whatever of a trilogy so vernon is an interesting i mean in some ways he's a very easily cuttable character like you could cut him and nothing would really change but what was really cool about doing this production with so big of a cast is that we really didn't have to cut any characters. Mm. i actually and i played vernon he was my main role but i played a couple other small ones like i played the the gunner's boy who takes out salisbury um i played like the soldier who arrests joan like a couple of those other smaller things but vernon is a lawyer um, and he is present for the scene, uh, the the audio clip that you play. Right. And he doesn't have a lot of status, which is interesting. So it's interesting that he's in the scene at all because he um, he's surrounded by people who far outrank him. And he's kind of just the lawyer who managed to kind of get in with the big kids. Um, yeah. And you have you have Somerset and Suffolk who are I think Somerset, I believe, is the highest ranking person in that scene. And then you have Richard, Duke of York, but at this point is not a duke because his father um, committed treason. And that scene of his treason is actually portrayed in Henry V. So Richard has grown up without a title and without land. And essentially this whole argument in the garden starts that ends with, with the plucking of the roses, the red and the white, everyone choosing sides. And Vernon is there and he kind of at first tries to mediate what's going on. He tries to sort of set up rules of like, oh, okay, so if we're gonna if we're gonna talk about who has who's got the better claim um, to the throne here, uh, well, we'll have to just it'll be by vote of majority. So whoever uh-huh. votes most for whichever side, like that's that's the person who's correct. Um, what Vernon, you know, 
is a little naive about, I think, is that he thinks that will work <laughs> um, right. because of right. course, as soon as um, and he and he does, he picks the white rose side. He thinks that that Richard has the correct claim. And so he picks that side because he thinks it's uh, legally correct, even though it's not really at the time really looking like a winning side. Right. Um, so it, I, I think that is a he's an interesting character. And then the other, the only other significant thing he does in the play is he gets into an altercation with one of um, Somerset's underlings, Bassett, and the two of them have a fist fight on stage. Um, of course they, then, they do. Of course they do. So, uh, and then they bring that grievance to the king, and it creates this whole disruption um, and creates a situation in which King Henry is forced to pick a side that sets off a lot of um, other events. That okay, let's let me try to catch people up on part one of Henry the Sixth. It it opens with basically a boy on the throne of England. The boy is Henry the Sixth. Um, at the beginning of the play, Henry the Fifth has just died. Henry the Fifth, like the great warrior king of medieval England, everybody loves him. But as soon as he dies in this play, everything starts falling apart. There are like battles on the fringes, and there's like messenger comes in, I've got more bad news. Another messenger comes in, I've got more bad news. So everybody's fighting. And this boy king, we get the impression right away. Of course, there's just not a lot of strength on the throne. So you've got all these English nobles who are fighting with each other instead of fighting who they should be fighting, which is the French. Okay, now, meanwhile, Joan of Arc shows up in the play. She shows up. She's going to strengthen the French army. And the English are like, um, we need to send Lord Talbot out to Orleans to attack her. He does, but he is defeated by Joan. Okay, now, meanwhile, back in England, since Henry VI is so young, they've appointed a protector over the throne, Gloucester. Gloucester is going to be a kind of, everyone's going to hate Gloucester by the end of the trilogy, but for now, that's kind of his job. He's kind of appointed general. And, now we've arrived at the scene that you're just talking about. Richard Plantagenet and Somerset are at each other's throats. These kind of two noblemen. And they're trying to get their followers to be like, hey, are you going to be with me? Are you going to be with that guy? Are you going to wear the white rose or the red rose? Now, Henry is, we're fast forwarding. I'm just trying to do like a really swift meatball plot of this thing. Henry VI is crowned in Paris, and he orders York and Somerset to, instead of fighting each other, to fight the French. Meanwhile, the French kill Talbot and his son. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and what's really the kicker about that is that um, they get into a situation where York and Somerset have been commanded to uh, send troops to support Talbot, but they're waiting for the other one to do it first before they send their troops. Yeah. Um, so it ends up with neither of them send troops. Talbot is surrounded and is is he and his son are both killed because they both refused to send troops, which is it's a bummer. <laughs> it's a bummer. It's yeah. a bummer. <laughs> For sure. So th- to make the long play very short, because we've got two other plays that we want to cover, the army captures Joan. And I, I'm going to ask you about Joan in just a second. I'm going to ask you what your opinion of Joan of Arc is as Shakespeare represents her. 
not as like she appears in like the the actual record or anything like that. So they they capture Joan, they execute Joan. Meanwhile, Suffolk, another English duke, he meets Margaret and he's like, "Oh my gosh, I love Margaret, but I can't really have Margaret." So he makes an arrangement between Margaret and Henry. He's going to he's going to get them to marry. So this is a way of bringing peace because Margaret is French, correct? She is French, although it's a little bit, um, it's it's an interesting choice that he chooses to marry Margaret or, or that, um, that Henry eventually chooses to marry Margaret because she's really not titled or landed in any significant way. The only potential right. um, advantage is that like, yeah, she's French, but that he had a lot of other, he could have married the princess of France. He could have married... Um, a lot of other women of status and she doesn't really, I mean, she's, she's just called Margaret of Anjou and um, her father Renier has like a little bit of status, but it, it's very surprising that, that, that marriage. Uh, that happened. he makes that move. Mm-hmm. And it becomes really clear in the last lines of the play that Suffolk is basically, he's arranged this marriage so that he can control Margaret so that Margaret can control Henry VI, yep. the king. Mm-hmm. And that's like the close of the play. I've got you, Margaret, where I want you, and you'll have Henry VI where I want you to have him. Mm-hmm. Cliffhanger, that's the end of the play. And we go into kind of part two, and we're like, okay, how's this going to play out? Okay, here's my overall assessment of the three plays. Okay. My overall assessment of the three plays is this. This is what happens when everybody in the kingdom wants to be the king, everybody in the in the kingdom wants to have the throne, except for the dude that actually is on the throne. Yeah. <laughs> like Henry doesn't really want to be there, does he? Or Yeah, well, Henry's is interesting because when I first read the play, I had never seen any version of it and I was just reading it. And historically, so in the play, Henry's about 17 when he... Uh, and he and he was about seventeen when he was actually crowned, but he actually inherited the throne. He was nine months old. So oh my he goodness! Okay, grew up with like basically just sort of being shuffled around between different nobles and lords. Um, and Gloucester was really the reigning king, more or less. Um, in the play, Gloucester is depicted as as really you know loving his nephew, wanting to having his best interests at heart. Um, and Henry, I think is interesting because he becomes less and less sympathetic, at least to me, the further you go. Because at first, when you, especially when you first see him, you just kind of, I mean, at least for me, I just kind of feel bad for him. Like he's only, he's a, he's a kid and he's got yeah. all of these adults around him who are fighting all the time, who are right. fighting over him, who are fighting over what his best interests are. And he really just wants everyone to get along and foolishly believes that he can make that happen. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of sad. And then you, you get into, and, but then again, the further you get into the plays, the more and more you're like, okay, but you should know better by now. Like you should really know better by now. Yeah. Um, and then when you get to the, the, the third part, um, it's, it's both tragic, but also it, it's a little hard to side with him. I think. I agree. I agree. Okay. I agree. I think we should talk about this later. I have tried to reason with myself about, Maybe there's a way that we can find by part three a way that Henry the Sixth is kind of respectable. But right now, 
he's just this kind of dithering weakling who kind of hides behind religious language. And he says, you guys, can't we just have peace? And you're like, bro, no, you can't. You have to like, you have to like rule here. Mm -hmm. Okay. Anyway, that's kind of where we are with Henry. Okay. Now let's jump into the second part. So the second part basically picks up exactly where we left off. We've got this weak Henry on the throne, all of these nobility, excuse me, that are struggling for power. Oh, oh, no, no, no. Hold on. I wanted to ask you about Joan. So let me pause there. Okay. Yeah, I've got, I got a lot of thoughts about Joan. (laughs) Okay. Tell me what you think about Joan of Arc as Shakespeare represents her, because she is a great French hero. But of course, she really beats up on the English in real life. So yeah, what do you think about how Shakespeare represented her? Yeah, it's it's a very jarring shift um, because it's almost like he remembered halfway through that she's French and Catholic and so therefore she can't be a good guy. It's right. like halfway, he got halfway through the play and then he went, oh, wait, oh, no. Oh, I, I made a mistake. Okay, I gotta... Um, right. And she's actually a witch. Like, is kind of uh-huh. how it goes. Uh, but I think that, that Joan is really interesting because you do see her written from a very English, uh, like, propaganda kind of perspective. What's also really interesting about part one is that they think it was actually written last part of the three plays. Right. Part two was written first, they think. Right. Because though I think a really good way to think about the Henry VI plays, even just a lot of history plays in general, is like they were kind of like the Marvel Cinematic Universe of Elizabethan England. Awesome. Because they have all these characters in them that like we are all like, who are these people? But to right. those an audience, it would have been like, oh, Jack Cade, who's like a big part of part two. Like, we don't know who that is, but he was incredibly popular. Like everyone went to see like Jack Cade. Because right. everyone knew who he was and he and like you knew there was going to be spectacle fighting and there was going to be all kinds of cool stuff. Uh, so like these plays really kind of emphasize that like that sort of like bigger scale um, play that isn't as I mean, it's hard to stage them because of that reason, because of how many characters there are. And uh, so many of those characters, we think like, well, I'll just cut them out. But yeah. Um, they would have like they would have been recognizable to Elizabethan audience. So it's interesting that um, Joan of Arc is one of the characters that he um, chooses to to highlight. And I think it's also interesting because when we were when when my cohort was was staging this play, we were we were struggling with okay, so in what parts is is Joan sort of almost. Uh, like satirical because of how much the the Dauphin, the, the French prince, like relies on her. Like mm. he's kind of a comedic character, or at least we leaned into that side of him where it's sort of like Joan is the one who was managing everything and the Dauphin right. is just kind of riding on her coattails. Yeah. And the actress who we had playing um, Joan, she was great. And she really wanted, she was like, no, I know that, you know, in context with the rest of the play, Joan is maybe... Um, not supposed to be the hero here, and we don't need her to be the hero necessarily. But she, we should, we should take her her role seriously. Yeah, because even if the way that Shakespeare's audience would have interpreted that might be more on the satirical or comedic side, she's just so so interesting. I mean, she's she's, right. she's one of the few in part one in particular. There's only I think there's only one other female character, and it's the the Countess of Auvergne who has like one scene. Right. Um, so it's really interesting to navigate like the way that um, 
especially there's so many lines in the play about how the the men cannot believe that they're getting bested by a woman. And it's very ironic because then in part three, they also keep saying they can't believe they're being bested by a woman. The woman now is Queen Margaret. Right. It's Margaret now. Yeah. Like, well, that that did happen to you like not that long ago. It shouldn't be that surprising. Um, But yeah, no, I think uh, it's, there's a very, uh, but the the scene that is so uh, jarring, I think, with the Joan is where they sort of reveal that, oh, her powers came from consorting with demons. Demons, right. And she's a witch. And right. that's why she was so good at what she did, which is definitely um, a take <laughs> for sure. Yeah, right, but, right. Uh, a very it, hot take. A very hot take. Um, and again, that's that's kind of where that feeling of like, you kind of feel like Shakespeare was writing the play and then went, oh, wait, oh, she's got to be bad. Okay, make this an upper class. She's a witch. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So, she summoned demons. Oh, and actually, the demons like abandon her, so she right. couldn't even really like wreak mischief the way that she wanted to. Yeah, right. Yeah. So it's um, yeah. It's, it's it's there's there's all these attempts in the play to discredit her. Yeah. Um, and despite the fact that there are so many attempts to discredit her, and attempts that might have been like people would have probably been like, yeah, that uh, agree. They would agree with that. Um, I still think that she does. She is a very compelling character because of how she and she and Talbot have a fight, have a fight together. And yeah. it's, a, it's a really great fight. I think because in some ways they're the only two characters who aren't just looking out for their own interests in that play. Huh. They both really do care about their um, respective sovereigns and their countries. And they are, they have ideals. Because they care in the ideals, and that's why I think that fight between the two of them is, is so great. Because it ends in a draw. I mean, Joan does defeat him, but she doesn't kill him. She lets him live. And I think that's what's what's compelling about both of their characters, is that they're they're kind of the only ones who are completely, who are not so self-absorbed and self-interested in advancing their own status. And that's yeah. also why they can't survive the play. Because in this world, you can't, like, that that kind of way of, living is not respected it's not um maintained you have like if you're not looking out for yourself then you're gonna die so this ashley i'm gonna i'm gonna i was gonna hold on to my thesis until we got to the end of part three but i'll just kind of plant it now so we can kind of keep touching on it the way that i can see henry the sixth being kind of redeemed by the end is that maybe this trilogy is kind of Shakespeare the pacifist and the and in Henry the 6th in the beginning of the plays looks kind of weak and dithering but by the end the kind of carnage and vengeance that haunts all of the plays suddenly his idealism which used to look naive now has a different kind of shine to it. Like maybe, just maybe, he actually was above it all. Now, I don't really believe that. I feel like, I mean, he has to make some choices in part one that he just doesn't, you can't just say, come on, let's be buddies and like shake it, you know, like let's just be nice to each other. You're like, that's not how human nature functions, man. We need you to make a call here and you're not making a call between the white and the red. So, okay, we can, we can like continue to shop if that's a totally, like if that's in any way realistic. Let's talk about part two of this trilogy. Henry on the throne, new bride, Margaret. Margaret is the puppet of Suffolk. And he's taken Margaret as a lover. 
So Henry is being, he's being cuckolded. He's being like further weakened. Um, and the Lord Protector Gloucester is now coming under attack by Queen Margaret. Margaret hates Gloucester, hates Gloucester's wife even more, is making fun of her the way that she is in court and all this sort of stuff. So Gloucester's wife is shamed by the way that she is, Margaret is acting toward her and she's exiled. Gloucester ends up being removed from office and then he's murdered on Suffolk's orders. Okay, it's just getting bloodier and bloodier. Then Suffolk in turn is banished and if that wasn't bad enough, he's captured by pirates and killed. Meanwhile, like the cardinal that kind of shows up and is kind of like in the middle of all this goes crazy in part because of his role in Gloucester's death. Now, here comes Jack Cade. You mentioned Jack Cade earlier. I'm really curious. I'm going to ask you about him also. He leads this kind of it's kind of a Marxist revolt, like up with the people. Gloucester was really friendly with the people, an advocate for the people. Gloucester's been put down. Jack Cade is like, you can't do that to us. I'm the representative of the people. He seizes London. Then his people kind of like leave him and he dies. But he's an interesting character. He's like, I didn't know what to make of him. He felt a little bit like, Shakespeare was writing this play and he was like, man, I've got to write about Jack Cade. What do I do here? Uh, let's give him a couple of acts and you will just, you know, we'll do a little history, but what do you make of him in the play? Do you like him? Do you think he's just kind of, um, I don't know, a kind of uneducated war maker. What's your take on, on Jack Cade? Yeah. Jack Cade is interesting because in a lot of productions, he's like, you just cut him out because you can, again, because a lot of times people will combine parts two and three. And so if you got to remove something, that's like a pretty self-contained plot that you can just right. like right out of there. So it is, yeah, and it, it, it was confusing to me too when I was first looking at it being like, why is he here? Like what, what is going on? But really yeah. it was like, he was, he was a popular character and figure he was just far removed enough historically that it wasn't like sedition to to really like yeah. him but i think that a little bit of of the draw and appeal to him is this sort of like up with the people kind of yeah um thing and i mean also just from from a staging perspective like his fights are really cool like oh, they're just really? they're just cool they, they can be because there's i mean there's a lot of flexibility within them um, and it's, it's for a lot of the like sort of spectacle of, um, the play can kind of come in because, um, you know, even in other history plays, like in Henry V, for example, you don't actually see that much fighting on stage. Yeah. Watching a stage production of it. You see a lot of like people running out of battle and telling you about what's been happening in the battle. But with, with Jack Cade, you actually see the fighting and, that's probably a, a big part of the appeal to the audience. But yeah, he's, um, I look like, I just kind of like looked up who he was and it's pretty yeah. much exactly what Shakespeare says. Really? Like he, he had, they executed some unpopular nobles um, and then he was wounded and then died in transport, presumably to his, either his trial and or execution. Yeah. Um, but that was, I think, I mean, it was one of the major rebellions post 
the Peasants' Revolt, which happened during Richard II's reign. Okay. Okay. So it was um it was it was it was a big deal. I mean, enough of I mean, they executed nobility, so that alone like makes it enough of a big deal. Yeah, um, right. Yeah, right. I think it is kind of hard. I'm sure that someone has written a lot about how that like is integrated into the plots of the rest of the plays and how it's thematically relevant, but um yeah, he's still definitely a character who I haven't kind of always forget that he's there and then it's like, oh, there he is again. Yeah, he's uh, like an action hero sidebar. Like, I'm mm-hmm. going to come in here and stir up trouble, cause a revolt, and then, yeah, he's kind of put down. Okay, so right after his revolt, we see another revolt because, like, it's revolt after revolt after revolt. This one is Richard, Duke of York, and he actually leads an army against the king. Like, he takes his revolt very, very seriously so Henry flees from Richard, goes to London, and we end part two on kind of another cliffhanger. Richard's forces are moving toward London. We're headed toward civil war. Okay, I'm going to pause there because I've got two bits of business that I want to do. We just finished, Emily Mayetta and I, who you know, we just finished Henry the, th- excuse me, Richard the third. Ah. Uh. Which is a great, great play. And I, because I was unfamiliar with Henry VI, parts one, two, and three, I didn't know what really had happened before Richard III steps on stage. So now I play back in my mind Richard III's opening monologue. Now is the winter of our discontent, made glorious summer by the son of York, and all the brow, what is it? And all the clouds that lowered upon our houses in the deep bosom of the ocean buried. He's kind of recounting all of these like mayhem and darkness that came before his moment stepping on stage. And I'm like, oh, now I know what he's talking about. It was terrible. And he has some great monologues in part three. I mean, just like. I'm going to play you one of those monologues by by Ray Fiennes. And I want to talk about it because one of those monologues is kind of like, this is when he becomes Richard III, right? This is like the moment. Okay. So before we jump into part three, a little bit of business. This podcast is hosted by the Searcy Institute, and the Searcy Institute is hosting a conference in Atlanta, Georgia, which is where I am from, from October 20th to 21st, 2023. Um, I strongly recommend that you go to any sort of Searcy conference. Ashley, you and I put on a play at the last Searcy National Conference in Colorado, um, which was a great hit thanks to your incredible direction, but we would both recommend to you any sort of Circe conference. Circe is um, kind of at the vanguard of this classical Christian education renewal movement. And of course, C.S. Lewis is one of the great heroes of that movement. And so they're kind of, the conference is kind of riffing on a line from C.S. Lewis saying, we are too easily satisfied like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. So this conference is kind of playing on what would it be like to not be too easily pleased in our like education? That's the idea behind it. So if you would like to attend the Searcy Regional Conference in Atlanta, go to searcyinstitute.org 
and that's spelled C-I-R-C-E, Circe Institute. And you will be able to find, without digging too far at all, how you can register for the Fall Regional Conference in Atlanta. Okay, Ashley, I've done a little bit of business. On to part three. We are now in full-on Civil War mode. Um, Richard is moving toward London where Henry is. Um, The play opens with, now help me with this, York is Richard? Is that true? Okay, so Richard... Yeah. Um. He so Richard. He's often referred to as Richard Plantagenet, Richard of York. It becomes complicated once you have his son Richard, who becomes Richard the Third. Um. Yeah. Because there are five names in English history, and they just cycle them through. Yeah. Um, right. Right. So. Yes. So yes. Uh. So Richard Duke of York. He is. He's got four sons. Uh-huh. Um. That are in the play. He had a lot of children in real life. Yeah. Um. And he and his sons have uh, essentially, they, they basically, like, they storm the throne room, essentially. And he sits on the, the chair of state. Like, yeah. And that is such a, like, you do not do that. Right. Um, the fact that you have that depiction of him sitting on the throne is like, it, yeah, it's a really big deal. Yeah. So, and then um, almost immediately in comes... Um, well, I mean, and Henry's support, Henry and his supporters are sort of lurking outside. And Henry has with him Clifford. And Clifford is, um, he hates the House of York because they killed his father. And mm-hmm. he is sworn to destroy them all. And he is furious at Henry for not taking action. He's like, he's in there sitting in your chair. Get in there and get right. him out of your chair. Right. Like, you can't do that. And Henry does come in and is he tries, he tries to be like, how dare you do that? It, it, <laughs> I don't do that. Get out of my chair. And it, um, I'm in New York is like, are you, what are you going to do? You going to make me? Um, yeah. and Henry doesn't really know what to say to that. So because they have, and then there's like a whole, like we have soldiers, we also have soldiers and they're yeah. kind of like trying to, trying to psych the other one out. And then Henry decides to, to broker a deal and says, okay, let me reign in my lifetime and I will make you my heir, York. And so essentially he's, he's disinheriting his son. Right. Um, and I just want to, I want to keep in mind if you're Margaret and you're, you know, you're about to hear this, you don't know about this deal that's being brokered and you're about to hear that your son has just been kind of brokered out of becoming king. Keep that in mind because that's going to come up to the show a little bit later. So she, well, yeah, I won't get to Margaret yet, but, um, so, so York agrees to that and his sons are not too pleased. They're like, why would you do that? Like you had the upper hand, you should just just take it. But it almost, you know, Richard, uh, kind of spells out some of his reasons, kind of trying to explain it by being like, well, you know, there's a lot of fighting going on in this way. Like I'm going to be the heir. Like, well, it'll be, it'll all be fine. And all of you, he's talking to his son will also be king one day. Mm. Um, and his, his, I guess Richard must be one of the, he must be younger than the other two. Um, Richard the third comes Richard the third, um, is particularly angry about this, but they kind of all hold their peace and are like, all right, well, dad's made his decision. So we'll just, we'll deal with that. So then, um, so then they leave and then Margaret, uh, arrives on the scene and she did not, she was not, she, she essentially, she comes in having, having just learned about what her husband has done in disinheriting their son uh-huh. and she's furious. Oh yeah. It's just, yeah, she's furious. 
and she raises an army. Yeah, she 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 essentially says, "Okay." I, her line, I think, in particular, is, "Thou prefers thy life above thine honor." Mm. And she says, "I'm going to take your army, and I'm I'm out of here. You can stay here. You can do whatever you want, but I am going to go get back our son's birthright because you're too much of a coward to do it yourself." Um, and everyone follows her. They all leave yeah. Henry, basically. Um, She'll at least, like, make a decision. Yeah. Right. And then Clifford also, um, who has been supporting Henry because he thought that Henry would, would get help him get revenge on York, leave with Margaret and is like, tells Henry, like, I can't believe you would disown your son. Like, that mm. is, that is like one of the worst. That is, um, you shame your family, you shame yourself. Um, and so, yeah, everyone... Henry kind of like tags along with them and is like always sort of like there with them and trying to be involved in things. They keep being like the grown up are talking, go sit in the corner. Like, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, right. So, yeah, it's really, really shifts that I know. Henry the third, Henry the sixth part three is just, it's all high points. It's like the first two parts are building up toward this and they have their own moments, but like part three from beginning to end is just like action after action after clash, action. clash, clash. No, yeah. No breaks from it. Like, it just goes and goes and goes. I, I wonder if you could perform Henry the Third by itself. That'd be a hard ask, wouldn't it? Or excuse me, Henry the Sixth Part Three by itself. I think people have done it. Really? Um, I think that you. What I don't have like numbers or statistics or anything, but I think the most common thing typically done is that people combine parts two and three because you do need a lot of that context. Yeah. And or like you have theater companies who have a lot of money, like the Royal Shakespeare Company, for example, who like do all three of them sort of like in rep. Yeah. Um, so but it, I think it's possible. I think it's possible because in part three, you don't need as much context in some ways because you can pretty much get most of what you need just from the, the character dynamics in terms of like, OK, he's king. She's queen. She's mad at him. Because yeah. He, like and they're filing like, so i think it read part three reads a little bit more clearly than parts one and two in some ways because you don't need as much of the historical context right right but i do think that you kind of miss out on some things if you don't have a lot of that so it, it's a very difficult they're tricky they're tricky ones that they're not they're not performed as often as so many of the other ones because you need there's so they're, so they're much famous. background so, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. so after margaret raises an army york immediately breaks his oath with Henry, like we saw that coming a million miles away, and he fights for the crown, but Margaret and her supporters, well, they kill York. And now Warwick, who we heard at the very beginning of this podcast, proclaims that York's son Edward is king. So Edward now is Edward IV. He captures Henry, King Henry. Then Warwick breaks with Edward, and he joins with Margaret, and they go raise a French army. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Edward's brother, and, and eventually who the guy who will become Richard III's brother, Clarence, he also joins with Warwick to capture Edward and to free King Henry. Okay, it's right around this time that we get a glimpse of Richard III kind of becoming this sort of demonic superhero. Mm-hmm. He's terrible in Richard III. Like, he's so terrible. And there's this beautiful little monologue. For me, this is 
Shakespeare beginning to really come into his own. The language is so beautiful. And so let's play a little bit of Rafe Fiennes as Richard dreaming upon the crown. I'll make my heaven to dream upon the crown. And whilst I live to account this world but hell. And yet I know not how to get the crown, for many lives stand between me and home. And I, like one lost in a thorny wood that rents the thorns and is rent with the thorns, seeking a way and straying from the way, not knowing how to find the open air, but toiling desperately to find it out, torment myself to catch the English crown, and from that torment I will free myself or hew my way out with a bloody axe. Why, I can smile and murder while I smile. I can add colors to the chameleon, change shapes with Proteus for advantages, and set the murderous Machiavel to school. Can I do this and cannot get a crown? Tut, <laughs> were it further off, I'll pluck it down. Do you have anything you want to say about that monologue? Well, just one thing I would say about, about Richard in this entire play is that you do very much see the seeds of what he becomes there's also I think, a great irony because um, so in the scene where Margaret uh, kills York, there is also a scene where Clifford kills Rutland and Rutland is the youngest son of um, Richard Duke of York. I don't know how historically how old he actually was, yeah. but in the play he's supposed to be about 12, um, which is really horrifying because yeah. Clifford kills him in a very brutal way. and. Richard is furious, is very angry and one and wants revenge on Clifford for killing his brother. And then very ironically, as Richard III, he has a, a boy who is the same age as Rutland killed in the tower. So you see this sort of like Richard had, I don't, you know, even though he was always very ambitious and somewhat villainous, you see this very steep decline from where he was in part six to where he ends up in, in Richard the third. Yeah. Um, and it's just, it's, it, I just, I just find it very interesting that he, he has this kind of same, he loses a brother and is, and is angry about it. And then later is very willing to kill another child of the same right. age. It's like a trauma cycle. Yes, it, that right? is such a huge theme in the history plays is this like the sins of the father visited upon the oh, son man. Just over and Absolutely. over again. Mm-hmm. A little comment about, just a production comment, the audio that we heard from Rafe Fiennes, that part of the monologue is taken by Laurence Olivier in his Richard III, and he bolts it onto the first half of the famous Richard III monologue. Did you, oh, have you ever seen the Richard, the, like Lawrence Olivier's Richard III? I haven't seen that one, no. So he opens it, you know, he kind of like hobbles up to the camera, Lawrence Olivier with this terrible hunchback, I'm Richard III, um, now is the winter of our discontent. And then halfway through, instead of continuing the monologue, 
he takes what we just heard and bolts it on to the end. And I think it's great because this is the moment where we see Richard just become so acquisitive about the crown. I'm going to do anything that it takes. I'll set the murderous Machiavel to school. You know, I'll do anything it takes to get the crown. I think it's such a perfect setup for the rest of Richard III. Okay, let's finish the plot. And then I've got a couple of questions that I want to ask you about the trilogy. So Richard, Duke of Gloucester, rescues his brother Edward. Mm -hmm. Edward returns, captures Henry, and leads an army against Warwick. Warwick is combined with Margaret and the French army. When Clarence abandons Warwick, Warwick is defeated and killed. Okay. Edward, meanwhile, King Edward, captures Margaret and helps to kill her son, Prince Edward. It's getting so awful in here. Richard, in turn, murders King Henry and begins to plot his way to the crown. So we end with like even more blood and and we kind of have this sense that like okay we've set up a despot to take the throne and that's the way it ends um boy the trilogy really does seem to me to be a kind of a, a plea against civil war because it's hard to find anybody in these plays maybe with the exception of gloucester mm-hmm who we have any respect for at all. Mm-hmm. And, and, it, and it's really hard to say, oh, that person was really fighting on the right side. Yeah, it it's a difficult pill to swallow for sure. It's why the characters like Talbot, like Joan, like Gloucester, they don't survive because yes. Yes. It, it's not a world where that kind of, you just, you just, you don't make it. If you, if you were, um, you know, it, it's the self-serving, it's the power hungry and Henry as well, you know, whether you decide, whether you feel sympathy for him or not, he also doesn't survive. And it's actually kind of a miracle he survives as long as he does. As long as he does, I know. Like, yeah. There's a, there's a scene where he kind of climbs up on a hill and he's looking down at the battle and he sees a young man kind of looting around in this decapitated helmet and he discovers it's his father. Yep. And then later, there's a father who sees a boy lying on the battlefield. It's his son. And Henry VI is seeing all this in his earlier kind of like naive piety now for me starts to look a little bit more like, I don't know, something a little bit more respectable. Mm -hmm. It's definitely, I think that What's tragic is that if Henry had been dealt a, sif- a different hand in terms of his reign, if he stepped into the crown at a different time, he might have made a very good king. Yeah. Um, but in times like that, a good man does not make a good king. Right. Um, totally. So it's really, it, it's, yeah, because he, he, he still maintained, like, you have Margaret who is just completely, like, heartlessly murdering people and does not feel a thing about it. Um, and most other people are the same in the plays, but Henry still sort of like feels for the loss and the, the conflict in his country and is saddened by the death of his family members, is saddened by the death of his subjects, which, you know, again, is, is perhaps admirable, but not a great characteristic of a leader in that. Yeah, history. right. Right. It, it, he reminds me a little bit of Richard II. Are you familiar with Richard II? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, 
I remember reading, um, I can't remember the name of the critic, but the critic said something to the effect of, Richard II is actually a, a really good poet. We see, you know, like some poetic flourishes from him, but as a king, not, not so much. And, and I kind of feel that way about Henry VI, like he would have made maybe a good priest, mm-hmm. but as a king who has to kind of make very difficult decisions, his abstinence from those decisions ends up creating this well, I don't know that it creates a vacuum. That's I, I don't want to say that, but it contributes to the vacuum of power. And Lancaster and York, of course, seize the vacuum, and they're going to, you know, get their guy on the throne. And Henry Henry the Sixth suffers. Mm-hmm. By the end, do you feel more pity for Henry the Sixth, or do you feel more frustration on his behalf? You know, I think I find his final scene where Richard the Third comes to kill him. I'm trying to find. I feel like I highlighted part of it, but um, I, I do feel. Yeah, I think. I think it's sort of like for most of the second part, a lot of the third part, I'm kind of like, oh, Henry's still here. Like he's still trying to make things happen right. around here. But then, <laughs> right. um, you're like, oh, isn't Henry's that cute? Um, but his he has this this sort of final monologue of like kind of almost like prophecy where he mm. prophesies the doom of Richard and all of the the pain and such that he will cause. And, you know, I think what what really challenges me about the, about Henry VI as a character is I don't really know what to make of him at the end because he he's frustrating in when he has moments of weakness, but I think pitiable in in that he is kind of one of the last humane characters left. Right. And that that makes him, I think, pitiable because, yeah, he is kind of having a normal reaction to all the stuff ha- are happening around him. He was he was brought to the throne at such a young age. He's never really been able to trust anyone. He and instead of instead of meeting those challenges like Margaret did and sort of hardening himself to that, because Margaret was, I mean, historically she was married at like fourteen. She was very yeah. young, which was yeah, drama, and she was chosen because people thought thought they could manipulate her. And she found a way to not to be the one doing the manipulating rather yeah. than the other way around. Yeah. Um, and not everyone can do that. And Henry couldn't. And um, I think that's where sort of the, the, the sympathy of like, man, you were dealt a really bad hand. And yet that wasn't your only option. So it just, it just leaves me in this, in this, it's kind of just, it's dissatisfying. It's a dissatisfying ending. Yeah. Okay. That brings me to my last question. If these are the first three plays that Shakespeare wrote, is that, do you think just based on the text, you could figure that out? In other words, if you did not know that they were really early in the canon, based on your familiarity with the text, would you read this and be like, yeah, Shakespeare's still kind of getting his feet underneath him? Or do you think, no, these are pretty mature plays. Like the genius is obviously showing up. Yeah, that's a that's a good question. I think well, it's interesting because part one they they think was collaborated, and there's lots of debate about like which parts Shakespeare wrote, which parts he didn't write. Yeah. Um. I what's what's kind of funny is that people just tend to be like, oh well, the parts I like are the parts that Shakespeare wrote. Totally, like, oh, totally. Like, someone else yeah. wrote that. Um. But we really don't know like which parts are are his necessarily. So um. But I think 
don't know. That's, that is a good question. I would, I would maybe place, especially part two and maybe an earlier category, just because of the reliance on spectacle, maybe. Okay. Um, but I think that, I mean, some of the speeches that, that Richard gives incredible. are just so incredible. So, you know, you know, I, I would have hard, I think I would have a hard time placing these. Moments. Yeah. I, I really appreciate that comment that like maybe the over-reliance on spectacle in part two might be our great playwright kind of covering the cracks in his, you know, I don't know, budding craft. Like he doesn't really have the craft yet. What am I going to do? Let's well, also, you know, you got to make money and if you're going to write yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. So, but yeah, I think that that, that, that is kind of. I guess, yeah, I wouldn't have, I, I guess, I, yeah, I wouldn't have necessarily thought, especially part three as being an earlier play. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, Ashley, I want to thank you for coming on this podcast. I will admit being very nervous before we started recording because it was just like, gosh, I can barely keep this straight. I'm glad I brought on a pro to help steer us through. I really appreciate it. Of course. Well, thanks for having me. This was very fun. I, I really get a platform to just talk about the Henry VI plays. Not many people get a platform to talk about the Henry VI plays. There's just, you know, this is, um, they are not the most popular plays by a long shot. Yeah. Um, but we are getting closer. I'm reminding listeners that we're getting closer to the end of the plays, the thing, because we well, now saw- have that you haven't done measure for measure yet. And that is another play that I love a lot. (laughs) It's wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. I'm so glad you said that my very first scene that I ever acted in Shakespeare was the brother condemned to death when he learns that, you know, he's in prison and he's going to die. And I fell in love. I fell in love with Shakespeare. I mean, I respected Shakespeare before that. Um, but after memorizing and performing that scene, I totally fell in love. And I think it's a hidden gem. And you know what else is a hidden gem is Coriolanus for me is absolutely I'm about a hidden to work gem. on that one. So I well, think it might... I'd love to know what you think. I would love okay. to know what you think after you get to work on it. Mm-hmm. Um, thanks again for coming on the show. Everybody else, please stay tuned as we... Um, touch on the final plays, including Measure for Measure, Comedy of Errors, Titus Andronicus, which my friend Tom Pope will join us for very soon. Good luck yeah. with that one. <laughs> it's kind of like we're treating that as sort of like the Halloween Shakespeare play. <laughs> That's you know? probably good. Yeah, it's probably pretty accurate. Pretty funny. accurate. On behalf of Ashley Wright and everyone at the Searcy Institute, thanks so much for joining us and happy listening. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.